How many are here for the first time at a Bunyan conference? Let me see your hands. <clears throat> All right. One of the things that we do is have discussions. And uh, five people said to me that this year you fellows will prove whether you believe in grace or not by how well you can disagree in love. So we decided next year the conference is going to be on the doctrine of reconciliation. <laughs> this is a series of subjects which obviously sincere Christians disagree upon and uh, we ought to be able to discuss them as Christians. And although we will not turn away any question that's a legitimate question, we don't want to be felt we're pressured in. We want to be able to honestly ask questions of all of the speakers, yet we, we don't want to see anybody caricatured and we don't want to see anybody uh, vilified in any way. Uh, if, if, you've, if you've come here and you don't agree with me, you have every right and opportunity to say so and ask questions just like I will ask you questions. But above all, let's act like Christians. Don't throw any bottles or anything like that. Uh, there are lots of literature back there, and uh, it creates a problem in the sense that there's different people. And the table over in that corner is from the uh, church, and you have to pay them. Uh, where's Chris? Did you bring any books, Chris? Yeah. Okay, and you must pay Chris for his books. And the Sound of Grace books over here, you pay either my wife or Marianne Shawback. Uh, otherwise, it just gets confusing. There are a couple things that I wanted to mention. Uh, one is his two new books that we just published. One is The Rent Veil by Randy Seavers. And uh, this one I would really urge everybody to buy. It's uh, Jonathan Edwards' Towards a Biblical Hermeneutic by Dr. Gilliand. And this is a message which he gave several years ago at a conference in Salada. And Jonathan Edwards really held to biblical hermeneutics of a Baptist. And if he would have been consistent and went one step more, he really would have gone all the way out of what he was in. And it's the most interesting treatise, and it's a very, very enlightening treatise. There are also some tapes back here, and that's from Mr. and Mrs. Sasser. They're going to be singing for us during the conference. They have some tapes. They're $10 a piece. You have to see them to buy the tapes. I think that's all. Tonight, we're uh, in the evening service, we'll go over some housekeeping rules. Now, on your sheet, this is that at least in some sense. And we're supposed to talk about Acts chapter 2. Prophetic interpretation is a matter of hermeneutics in the final analysis. And hermeneutics are the rules of interpretation. And how we interpret the scriptures or what rules we use to interpret the scriptures will determine our view in many cases, especially in the area of prophecy. We probably should have added here uh, basic presuppositions are even more important because unfortunately some people have basic presuppositions before they even start to 
uh, make their system of hermeneutics. And your presuppositions are the things that you presuppose and accept as truth in the very beginning, and you put down a block and you say, now this is beyond dispute. And of course, many times those things are very disputable. One of the things that very few people ever learn is that in most cases where we disagree, we do not argue on the basis of facts. We argue only on the basis of presuppositions. Because something is a fact to you because of your presupposition, and that same thing is not a fact to me. And if you ever talk to an evolution, he'll say, well, it's a well-established fact that evolution is true. Well, it's not a well-established fact at all. So if you want to argue about all of these points over here, that's totally irrelevant. You have to start with the basic presupposition. The same thing is true as covenant theology, dispensationalism, and so on. Now, what this involves when it comes to prophecy, it involves how we relate the Old Testament to the New Testament. And that's really the, the biggest thing in discussion in Christianity today, the relationship of the Old Testament to the New Testament scriptures and the relationship of the old covenant God made with Israel and the new covenant made in Jesus Christ. Theonomy, which is a very prevalent view among many people, and its view of post-millennialism is totally dependent on a particular view of the relationship of the Old Testament and the New Testament. Consistent covenant theology has a view of the Old Testament and it works it out. The same thing is true with dispensationalism. Dispensationalism has a view of the Old Testament scriptures, especially as it relates to the nation of Israel, and this colors the way of necessity they approach certain doctrines. This is especially true in the promises made to Israel as a nation, and you'll see a footnote there, and the footnote says, we must distinguish between Israel as a nation under special and specific covenant with God and Israel as an ethnic people who are the special natural seed of Abraham. And we must make that distinction, it seems to me, because there are many who reject the notion that Israel will be regathered as a nation but they do believe that many Jewish people will be converted, and they gather that from Romans chapter 9. And so when we say Israel, are we talking about Israel in a national sense with a special covenant, or are we talking about them in an ethnic sense as the natural seed of Abraham? The peculiar, question mark, nature of prophetic literature uh, makes it very difficult also. And when we say peculiar nature, political, uh, prophetic literature, we mean this. A dispensationalist, his basic rule is if common sense makes good sense, any other sense is nonsense. And by that he means the Bible means exactly what it says. Lamb means lamb, tree means tree, I mean tree means tree, and so on and so on. And you don't deviate from that no matter what section of the scripture you're in, that rule of taking the scripture seriously, literally, doesn't deviate that at all. Now, the very, under B, the very nature of prophetic language necessitates a reversal of natural versus spiritual. And uh, here you have a total different approach. The dispensation will say you take every word 
in its natural language unless the context forces you to do otherwise. One who is not a dispensationalist, he will say, no, that's not a universal method. When you come to prophetic language, which by its very nature is given in symbolic language, you totally reverse your approach. You don't take history and study it the same way that you study poetry. You do not interpret Dante's internal ferno the way you do Macaulay's history of the world. And so they will reverse their interpretation. And, and both of them love God. Both of them are taking the scriptures literally. And when some people say, well, you don't believe the Bible literally, oftentimes what they mean is you don't mean it naturally. You're not taking in its natural language. An amil will take the scriptures just as literally as, an, as a pre-mill does. But he will naturalize some language, and the other one will spiritualize some language. And I think we have to uh, understand that when we're uh, using, the, uh, uh, when we're having a dialogue with each other. All right, uh, this is the, uh, number four is really the crux in the road. Everybody spiritualizes the Bible to some extent. And the real question is not, do we ever spiritualize it? But how do we know when and when not to spiritualize it? In other words, if you take the Bible literally, I believe it means exactly what it says. Well, do we do that? No, we really don't. We come to Genesis 3.15, and we don't believe that's talking about a snake and somebody's heel. We believe that's talking about the destruction of the power of Satan by our Lord Jesus Christ. We all do that. When we get to Psalm 22, and Psalm 22 talks about the bulls of Bashan, and it talks about uh, saving from the, the mouth of the lions. It's talking about our Lord on the cross. And there, lion means man. So everybody spiritualizes the scriptures to some degree. The question is, how do I know when to spiritualize it? And how do I know when to not spiritualize it? And the dispensationalist, his approach is you never, ever spiritualize anything unless you are forced to by the context. And the Amil will do the exact opposite. He'll say, no, you never take any prophetic symbolic language in its natural meaning. You always spiritualize that. And you can see they're going to have almost two different Bibles in one sense. Now, the, uh, one will take the same rules of interpretation all the way through the scriptures. And the other one will take a different rule when he comes to uh, prophecy. The basic question is, where do we get our hermeneutical approach? Do we, first of all, take a study in logic before we can ever learn how to rightly interpret the scriptures? And will that give us the rules of interpreting the Old Testament? Now, I am not in any way inferring that the scriptures is ever illogical. And the law of non-contradiction and the other uh, absurdums and all of those things, they certainly apply to the scriptures the same as if we're studying something else. But when we're talking about a hermeneutical approach to the Old Testament, we have to get that out of the scriptures and not out of logic. We're not, we're not concerned about how do I learn how to think correctly, but how 
do I think correctly about the Old Testament scriptures? And that's an entirely different question, it seems to me. So I say that the scriptures are not illogical, but the scriptures goes past logic. The virgin birth, the two natures of our Lord Jesus Christ, one would never arrive at those by logic. And they could never be proved by logic, nor can they be disproved by logic. They go past logic. Now, the other one is from history and the creeds. Do we have for us a, a hermeneutical approach in the creeds? And I, I think this is dangerous. Uh, one of the difficulties with the creeds is they lock you in, and you really can't ask questions. Uh, there's a book called Laughing Ourselves to Death. It's well worth reading. And uh, in it, the man uses an illustration out of uh, uh, the guy who invented printing. Help me. Uh, Benjamin Franklin. <laughs> Gutenberg invented printing, yes. But the printer in America, uh, the, the, the leader of the Quaker movement came to Ben Franklin and he says, people are lying about us. And they're, they're saying all kinds of wicked things that we believe that we don't really believe. And so Ben Franklin said to him, well, why don't you set down in a creed what you believe? And, and then they will not be able to caricature you. And the man says, well, he says, we thought about doing that. But he says, since we've started our movement, there's a lot of things we were sure about that we discovered we were wrong about. And there was a lot of things that we thought were wrong that we've since discovered is right. And since we don't believe we have yet arrived at perfection with all knowledge, we are afraid to write it down especially lest our children be afraid to challenge it if God teaches them further truth. And Benjamin Franklin wrote in his diary, this is the first, instances, the first instance of humility I've ever seen in religious people. Would to God that people today had that same attitude towards creeds and towards history. And when we talk about the good and necessary consequences deduced, that's what we're doing, and we're making logic to be our master instead of scripture to be our master. And uh, logic is a good mistress, but a very cruel master. And so we cannot go there. The next thing we have here is from the Bible. I believe the Bible. <laughs> well, if you're going to take your hermeneutics from the Bible, I would like to hear you talk to a Seventh-day Adventist. And like you hear him say, look, it says seventh day. It doesn't say first day. It says seventh day. It says don't eat pork. Is that what it says? Is that what God wrote in his book? Now, how can you say don't when it says do? How can you say do when it says don't? And you say, well, that's not in this dispensation and so on and so on. The first thing you know, the Bible <laughs> I don't know if you've ever talked to a fundamentalist who didn't believe that women should wear pantsuits. And uh, one of the most amazing things to me is that most of the people who believe this are dispensationalists. And you go to these uh, fundamentalist Christian day schools that are run by dispensationalists and they have a rule that women can't wear sh slacks. And they get it out of the book of Deuteronomy. Now, how in the world they can do that consistently with their presuppositions beyond me, but they do. But there you take it. 
And then Deuteronomy 24, where it says, if a man divorces his wife, he cannot marry her again. And then we have Bill Gothard saying that you can't marry anybody but that one. Go back there and say, but the Bible says, the Bible says, can, it? Can, can somebody marry the same woman twice in this dispensation? Well, you see, it isn't just enough to say from the Bible. Number four, it says, we get our presuppositions from the apostolic method of interpreting the Old Testament promises, especially the kingdom passages. And what that means is this. If we want to learn how to interpret Isaiah... How did the apostles in the New Testament interpret Isaiah? How do we use what they said to get a methodology in approaching the whole Old Testament scriptures and especially the covenant that God made with the nation of Israel? Our whole conference is built around number four. My particular message is using Acts 2, not just to, to, to see what Acts 2 means, but to see specific principles of interpretation. In Acts chapter 2.16, this is that, is Peter's understanding of what the prophet Joel was talking about. And in Acts 2.31, when he says, he, referring to David, seeing this before spake, we have Peter's understanding of what David understood in the covenant that God was making with him. Peter's sermon in Acts 2 is the inspired interpretation of how the events on the day of Pentecost are proof that both Joel's New Age prophecy and the eternal kingdom promised to David has been fulfilled. The argument is simple. The gift of the Holy Spirit proves the resurrection and ascension of Christ. And this in turn proves the kingdom age predicted in Joel has come. And that proves that Christ has been established on David's throne in fulfillment of the Davidic covenant. Go to Acts chapter 2, verse 33 for just a moment. The book of Acts chapter 2, verse 33. And verse 32 to pick up the context. This Jesus hath God raised up whereof we are all witnesses. Therefore... Therefore, being by the right hand of God exalted, and having received of the Father the promise of the Holy Ghost, he hath sent forth this which you now see and hear. In other words, what you see here is only possible because he's at the right hand of God the Father Almighty. And because he's exalted, and the Father hath given him the promise of the Father. Now remember, in the Old Testament scriptures, the heart of the promise of the new covenant was the giving of the Spirit. And Randy's going to be talking about that in our message in Jeremiah chapter 31 and Hebrews 8. And so what Peter is saying here is that promise that God made is fulfilled, and what you see is the proof of it. It's the proof that Jesus is at the Father's right hand the throne of David is established. The new age has come, and this is the evidence of it because it's fulfilling those prophecies. What we're going to be trying to understand is, does the New Testament spiritualize or does it naturalize the Old Testament kingdom? And we have difference in our views. <clears throat> what we tried to do, we tried to get two pre-mills and two 
semi-all mills. And the one pre-mill had to back out on us. <laughs> that was Gary Scott. But we did that deliberately, and, and what we did, instead of just taking all mill, pre-mill, post-mill head-on, we took key passages of Scripture, and then we had somebody interpret that, and then we discussed that interpretation. Jeremiah 33 is a key passage of Scripture, and an all mills and the pre-mills differ on it. Acts 2 is a key passage of Scripture. Romans 9 through 11 is a very key passage of Scripture. And our learned friend, Fred, is going to try to convince us I'm not sure he's going to succeed, but he's going to try, believe me. <laughs> but anyhow, we did that deliberately so that we could discuss the scriptures themselves and try to get a hermeneutic out of these New Testament passages of scripture. And so what Peter is arguing here is the prophecy of Joel is fulfilled, the spirit has come, and he's only come because the promise to David has been fulfilled in the resurrection of Jesus Christ. Go with me to the book of Exodus chapter 19. And hold your finger at that passage, and then go over to the book of First Peter. And I want First Peter chapter two. In Exodus chapter nineteen and verse three. And this is the preamble to the Ten Commandments, the giving of the law, the giving of the covenant. Verse 3, And Moses went up unto God, and the Lord called unto him out of the mountain, saying, Thus shall you say unto the house of Jacob, and tell the children of Israel, You have seen what I did unto the Egyptians, and how I bare you in eagles' wings, and brought you unto myself. And every writer that you read, almost, will start with this text and say, now this proves that these people were under grace. They were redeemed. The dispensationalist will use this, and your old dispensationalist will say they traded grace for law. Modern dispensationalists don't say that. Older dispensationalists did say that. They say they should not have entered into this covenant because they were trading grace for law. The covenant theologian bases his whole system on this, and he says you cannot put a redeemed people under law. And these people were redeemed, and here they were under grace. Now, if you don't hear anything I say this afternoon, hear this. Learn to distinguish between a purpose of grace and a covenant of grace. It was very gracious of God to redeem Israel out of Egypt. But that redemption is not the same as salvation. That's not justification. They were not a redeemed people in the sense that we are a redeemed people. And they were not under a covenant of grace. They were under a covenant of law. It was very gracious of God to put them under a covenant of law in order to condemn them in order to bring them to repentance, it was very gracious. There's no grace in the law, but it serves a gracious purpose, and they totally miss it here. Now, verse 4, you've seen what I did to the Egyptians, how I bear you an eagle's wings and brought you to myself. Now, therefore, because I graciously did that, because I showed my kindness to you as to no other nation, now, therefore, if you will obey my voice indeed, and keep my covenant. Now that's conditional. 
If you do this, I will do that. If you will keep my covenant, I will give you these blessings. Notice what the blessings are. You shall be a peculiar treasure unto me above all people, for all the earth is mine. And you shall be unto me a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. These are the words you shall speak unto the children of Israel. Go over to 1 Peter chapter 2 and verse 9. 1 Peter 2 verse 9. But you are a chosen generation, a royal priesthood. All right, a, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a peculiar people that you should show forth the praises of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light, which in time past were not a people, but now you are the people of God, which had not obtained mercy, but now had obtained mercy. Now you will notice the very specific promises of blessing to the nation of Israel, which they never received because they never kept the covenant, those exact specific blessings are given to you and me today. We are the holy nation. We are the kingdom of priests. We are his peculiar treasure. Now, the question is, is this the uniform method by which the New Testament writers interpret kingdom prophecies in the Old Testament, or is this an isolated instance and it doesn't give us a hermeneutic? And I submit to you, this is a hermeneutic. If we are to understand Israel and who Israel is and what Israel's purpose is as a nation, I think we have to approach it from passages like this. On with our notes. Neither covenant theology nor dispensationalism see the full prophetic significance of Pentecost. In fact, in covenant theology, they, they hardly ever use the word Pentecost or uh, the coming of the Holy Spirit. They will say a greater uh, effulgence, or they'll use words like this. I have begun in my writing and in my preaching to refer to the day of Pentecost as the personal advent of the Holy Spirit. And this is the personal advent of the Holy Spirit in the same sense that the coming of Christ is the personal advent of the Son of God. And the day of Pentecost is the watershed of all history. This is the great event that, that seals forever the work of Christ and opens up the whole new era to which the Old Testament looked forward. The importance of the Acts 2 is in both a dispensational and a covenantal sense. If one is going to understand Acts chapter 2, it seems to me he has to see it as the bridge between the old and the new. And the old covenant is finished forever. The second thing we have here is the question of continuity. And everybody wants to talk about continuity. There is continuity and there is discontinuity. And they argue about what continues and what discontinues. And to me, it's an argument that's useless because it's a 100%. There is 100% continuity and there is 100% discontinuity. There is 100% discontinuity in the Old Covenant and every single thing the Old Covenant stood for and every single thing the Old Covenant brought into being is done, finished. But there is a 100% continuity 
in the one unchanging purpose of God to save his one elect people by grace through faith. That just goes right straight through the whole thing. It seems to me we must take passages like 2 Corinthians 5.17. Therefore, if any man be in Christ, he is a new creation. And we use that to talk about the change in a Christian's life. Well, that's not what the text is talking about. If you want to use it that way, go ahead. But that's not what it's talking about. That's talking about the new creation, the church. It's the same thing of the book of Ephesians when it talks about the new man. When Paul says, therefore, if any man be in Christ, he is a new creation, old things have passed away, and behold, all things, without any exception, have become new. It doesn't say they're becoming new. They have become new. Now, I don't know about you, but I can't say that. I can say most things, a lot of things, but I can't say that all things without exception have become new. That's not talking about the moral change in a Christian's life. The commentary on that text of Scripture is the book of Hebrews. Because in Jesus Christ, everything is new. There's a new priesthood, there's a new law, there's a new approach to God, there's a new sacrifice, there's a new name. Everything is new, 100%. However, all of these things which are totally new are things which are prophesied in the Old Testament. And they're the fulfillment of what was in the Old Testament. And everything that's back here, whether it's a Sabbath, whether it's a lamb, whether it's a nation, it is all typical, and it's all pointing towards this which is new. And the writers of the New Testament are not saying there's a whole new religion, but they're saying all that God has promised to the fathers have now come to pass. We live in this new age. Everything that the Old Covenant established... And the Old Covenant was the Decalogue at Mount Sinai. And that covenant established Israel as a nation. Israel's history as a nation, as a body politic, begins at Mount Sinai. That covenant established a nation, a priesthood, a sacrificial system, laws, all of those things stand and fall together. And as long as that veil is in the place in the tabernacle, there is no approach to God as long as that covenant in that box is in force. Break that covenant, there's no approach to God. And what has happened is, when the veil of the temple is rent from top to bottom, that's to signify the terms of that covenant have forever been met. And now there's access to God. Now there's approach. But every single thing the old covenant established, the people, the promises, the Sabbath, all of those things have a fulfillment in the New Testament in Jesus Christ. Now, here's a short outline of Acts chapter 2. We're going to come back to this in the second session. But the basic outline in Act 2 is there you have the miracles of tongues in Acts chapter 2, if you have your... Bible open to that passage, you look at it. Acts chapter 2, verses 1 to 11, you have the miracles of tongues. And verse 12 is the obvious question. And they were all amazed. And they were in doubt, saying, one to another, what does this mean? Now, the rest of chapter 2 is Peter's answer to that. 
Notice in verse 13, others mocking said, these men are full of new wine. Everybody who heard didn't hear. <laughs> there were those who heard the language but never heard the message. So, so there probably was a miracle not just on the tongue but also a miracle on the ear. And so now Peter says, no, no, they are not drunk as you say they are. But this is that which was spoken by the prophet Joel. And this is the proof that David's throne is established. And he's at the Father's right hand and he sent forth this, which you now see and which you rejoice in. And so you have the declaration of Christ's Messiahship and then Peter's interpretation of the Davidic covenant. Now, there's two passages that he quotes, and we ought to look at them to make sure we get their background. He quotes from Joel chapter 2, and if you go back there, Joel chapter 2, and the reference there should be verses uh, 28 through 32 instead of 12 through 17. I made a wrong reference here. In, in Joel chapter 2, verse 12 through 17, you, you have a call to repentance. And beginning to read verse 18, Then will the Lord be jealous for his land and pity his people. And one of the things throughout the whole Old Testament, the land and the people are almost one and the same thing. And there is no question that the heart of the promise of God to the nation of Israel in the Old Covenant is the land. And, and when, when somebody quotes Joshua and says that all that God has promised has been fulfilled, as if that ends the question, man, in the Psalms, in Joel, in, all the way through the scriptures, all the way up to the book of Malachi, the land is promised to the nation of Israel to be an everlasting possession. And, and, and let me say without any hesitation, if all I had was an Old Testament and I believed in an absolute literal interpretation of the Old Testament scriptures, I would believe exactly what the Jews who crucified our Lord believed. I would believe in a literal kingdom. I would believe that they should have the land. I would have a Schofield Bible, which I have right here. I brought it with me. <laughs> no, I think we have to, you have to admit this, that the Old Testament clearly makes the land to be the heart of the promise. The question is, does that come into the New Testament totally unchanged, as dispensationalism claims? Or is it radically, totally different as it is interpreted by the New Testament scriptures? That's one of the things we're going to be discussing here. Now, uh, yea, the Lord will answer and say to his people, Behold, I'll send you corn and wine. And he talks about blessing them. And then in verses 20, he refers, or verse 21, he refers to the land. Fear not, O land. Verse 22, be not afraid, O beasts. Verse 23, be glad then, you children of Zion. And it's almost as, as this is all one and the same thing because it's all part of God's inheritance. Verse 26, they will never be ashamed. They will have plenty. They're going to be satisfied. And verse 27, and you shall know that I am the Lord in the midst of Israel and that I am the Lord your God and none else and my people shall never be ashamed or never be disappointed. Now, this is the heart of the expectation of the Old Covenant. Rest from all enemies. Satisfaction. God dwelling in the midst of his people. And God dwelt in the midst of Israel as no other nation. 
And they could look over to see the Shekinah glory. The question is, is this going to be fulfilled with God in the midst of a physical nation in the future, or is this Emmanuel God with us now, and is this fulfilled in the church? And can we say this promise is ours? That's what we're going to be talking about. Verse 28 through verse 32 is the section that's quoted by Peter. And this is the section that Peter quote. And it shall come to pass afterward that I will pour out my spirit upon all flesh, and your sons and your daughters shall prophesy. Your old men shall dream dreams. Your young men shall see visions. And that's exactly opposite. Old men quit dreaming. Uh, young men are the people who are the dreamers, but the old men, they're afraid to try anything. And young men don't have vision. They just live for today. But when the Holy Ghost comes into a congregation, the old men dream dreams. And the young men see visions. And it just reverses the natural order of things and is overcome by the grace of God. Also upon the servants and upon your handmaids in those days will I pour out my spirit. And I will show wonders in the heavens and in the earth, blood and fire and pillars of smoke. The sun shall be turned into darkness and the moon into blood before the great and terrible day of the Lord come. And here's the whole point of the passage. And it shall come to pass that whosoever shall call on the name of the Lord shall be delivered. For in Mount Zion and in Jerusalem shall be deliverance, as the Lord hath said and in the remnant whom the Lord shall call. Now, obviously, verse 32 is the whole point of the prophecy. And the question, it seems to me, questions are, and we're going to come back to these in the next session, where is Mount Zion and Jerusalem? What's that a reference to? What's that talking to? Is that to be spoken of in a natural sense or a spiritual sense? What's this deliverance referring to? What is this deliverance that is promised to take place for sure? Thirdly, when will this deliverance take place? And fourthly, which we didn't write down, is who are going to be delivered? Is this the deliverance of the physical nation from the captivity of the worlds and brought back to Jerusalem and reestablished and, re uh, and converted and reestablished in the land of Palestine? Or is this the gospel? Is this the gospel of the grace of God delivering men from sin and shame? In chapter 3, verse 1 of Joel, For behold, in those days and in that time when I shall bring again the captivity of Judah and Jerusalem. Now, in those days and that time, in chapter 3, verse 1, must be the same as the last days of Acts chapter 2, verse 17. And it must be the same as the afterward in Joel 2.28. You have two footnotes which we will not take time to read. But what it is, is it is an attempt to show that this is not... The, the, the last days have two last days. There's the last days for, for us and there's the last days for Israel. And that the afterward here is after the second coming. But it seems to me you can't get that into the book of Acts chapter 2. We'll look at it in just a moment. In Acts chapter 2, verse 21. It shall come to pass that whosoever shall call upon the name of the Lord shall be saved. Now, he has said right before this about the moon and the stars and all of these things. 
And then he says, whosoever shall call upon the name of the Lord shall be saved. Now, I may not understand how that prophecy is fulfilled, but my question is, is Peter saying that Joel's prophecy is fulfilled? Or is he making a prophecy of something that's going to take place in the future? The covenant with David in 2 Samuel chapter 7. 2 Samuel chapter 7. And this is the second part of the book of Acts, chapter 2, that Peter quotes from. 2 Samuel chapter 7, beginning to read at verse 10. Moreover, I will appoint a place for my people Israel, and will plant them that they may dwell in a place of their own, and move no more, neither shall the children of wickedness afflict them any more as before time. And since the time that I commanded judges to be over my people Israel, and have caused thee to rest from all thine enemies, also the Lord telleth thee that he will make thee a house. David wanted to build a house for God, and God says, No, no, you're gonna, I'm going to make a house for you. Verse 12, and, and log this into your computer because we're going to come back to this verse. When thy days be fulfilled... And thou shalt sleep with thy fathers, I will set up thy seed after thee, which shall proceed out of thy bowels, and I will establish his kingdom. He shall build a house for my name, and I will establish the throne of his kingdom forever. I will be his father, he shall be my son. If he commit iniquity, I will chasten him with the rod of men, with the stripes of the children of men, but my mercy shall not depart away from him as I took it from Saul, whom I put away before thee, and thine house and thy kingdom shall be established before thee, thy throne shall be established forever, according to all these words and according to all this vision, so did Nathan speak unto David. And if you look at verse 11, I'll make thee a house. Verse 13, I will build thee a house. Verse 12, I'll raise up a seed. Verse 12, I will establish his kingdom. Verse 13, a kingdom or a throne established forever. He's going to have a house, a kingdom, a throne established forever. Now the question is, are all of those things promised to David presently fulfilled, or are they to be fulfilled in the future? Is this the Davidic kingdom? Is this the Messianic kingdom? Is this the kingdom that the Old Testament believer looked forward to, or is this something in the future? First Chronicles 17 is a parallel passage, and it adds one note, so just look at that. First Chronicles chapter 17, verse 11. And notice again how verse 11 has a time reference. In, and it shall come to pass when thy days be expired that thou must go to be with thy father, that I will raise up thy seed after thee, which shall be one of thy sons, and I will establish his kingdom. He shall build me a house, and I will establish his throne forever. Verse 14, I will settle him in my house and in my kingdom forever. And his throne shall be established forevermore. And here again, you have the promise to David that God's going to build him a house, and then he's going to establish him in the Father's house, and his throne is going to be established forever. Now the questions are these. How many, if any, of the promises made to David have been fulfilled? 
How many, if any, will be fulfilled in an earthly and physical reign of Christ in the future? Three, is the basic nature of the promises made to David natural or spiritual? Now, when we start answering these questions, one of the things we're going to have is a problem with terminology because the players keep changing the rules. They really do. <laughs> the same person will use a word two different ways. And sometimes two different people will use the same word, but they'll mean two entirely different things. You remember when it was in Alice in Wonderland or Through the Looking Glass when she says, what does that word mean? And Humpty Dumpty says, it means whatever I want it to mean. <laughs> and sometimes that's the way it is with theologians. Covenant theologians are notorious for this. I mean, I mean they, will, they will use a word and define a word, and, and in the next breath, they'll be using that same word with a totally different meaning. It seems to me we must define the word kingdom carefully and the word millennium carefully. And when I say the players have changed the rules, historically, until very recently, when the terms pre-mill, all-mill, or post-mill were used, everybody understood the words kingdom and millennium to be interchangeable. Until recently. The only question was, is the millennium a spiritual kingdom or an earthly literal kingdom? That was the question. A corollary question was, is this millennial kingdom present or future? But they all agreed that to say is the kingdom present is the same as saying is the millennium present. The kingdom promised to David was identical to the millennial reign of Christ. And that kingdom was either now present, and you were in all mill, and Christ was presently reigning on David's throne, or that kingdom would be established in the future, and you'd be a pre-mill or post-mill, and Christ's throne was not yet established. Now, number four is, is a personal observation. And I, I honestly think this is true. I think that if we take the words pre-mill in their literal meaning, that the second coming of Christ must precede the millennium, then I think we have to say that means that no kingdom or millennial prophecies can be fulfilled until after the second coming. And likewise, an all-mill, to be consistent, would have to say there can be no kingdom prophecies fulfilled after this age because this is the millennial age. And the post-mill would say there has to be all of them fulfilled before the second coming of Christ. Now, I don't know of anybody who believes any of those three views today. And, and, and I think if we would get rid of the word millennium out of our minds because we're, we're referencing everything to Revelation 20, and let's use the word kingdom, which the Acts and the Epistles use synonymously with kingdom. And let's preach of pre-kingdom, post-kingdom, and then we have a different approach to it. Hardly anyone believes any of these positions. Lately, we've seen attempts to make the millennium a separate aspect of the kingdom. And so the kingdom is one aspect that has come, but the millennial aspect is yet to come. Now, don't confuse that view, which you will probably hear from some of the speakers here. Don't confuse that with the now, not yet view of an all-mill. 
I mean, they're both, they're both saying there's some things happen now in fulfillment of prophecy, and there's some things that happen in the future in fulfillment of prophecy. But when an Amil says, I believe the kingdom is now, but not yet, that's different than saying, I believe the kingdom has come, but the millennium hasn't come. That's, that's an entirely different thing. Now, if we look at Appendix A and B, and I'm not going to take time to do that, uh, if you want to look at it during the intermission, uh, it's the Schofield note on the kingdom in the Old Testament and the kingdom in the New Testament. And this is classical premillennial dispensationalism. Please, please, please listen to this next statement. I am not attempting to tar all present-day dispensationalists with everything Schofield believed. Some men have repudiated much of what Schofield taught. I think we have somebody here who is a progressive dispensationalist who is going to have a word tomorrow. The question that must be ultimately discussed is whether some people are being intellectually honest by calling themselves dispensationalists. Just as there are people today who call themselves covenant theologians who have absolutely no right to do that. Dr. S. Lewis Johnson is one of my favorite preachers and a godly, godly man whom I admire and love. <laughs> I was with him, first time I ever met him was in Texas, and I was in the conference with him at Salado. And they had a, a special pastor's fellowship where he answered questions. And I sat there, and I was listening to him answer questions, and, and I, I couldn't believe some of the things he was saying. And finally I raised my hand, and if you know Dr. Johnson, he has a tremendous sense of humor. And he looked at me and he says, John, before I answer your question, I think you owe me an apology. And I almost died. <laughs> and I said, what did I do? He says, I have a tape where you said publicly that I was the weirdest dispensationalist you ever heard of. <laughs> and then he grinned from ear to ear. And I knew I had been taken down the garden path. And I said, I repent in sackcloth and ashes. Well, they kept on asking him questions. And he was giving answers that a dispensationalist ought not to give. And finally, I raised my hand again, and I say, I take that back. You are a weird dispensationalist. <laughs> and then he really cracked up and laughed. I have heard men like Sinclair Ferguson and Dr. J.I. Packer, who are committed to the Westminster Confession of Faith, and if I was in a church and I was an elder, I would put them up for heresy because they were contradicting the Westminster Confession of Faith. And yet they were preaching tremendous sermons. Dr. Sinclair Ferguson was at uh, Seaside Heights at one of the conferences we had, and his subject was the New Covenant Blessing of the Spirit. And I thought, this i got to hear from a, from, a, this, from a covenant theologian. His opening remark, he read John 16, He is with you and shall be in you. He says, now some people say this means the Holy Spirit did not indwell the Old Testament believer. Now, of course, we know that interpretation is wrong. And then he preached for 45 minutes as if it were true and had one of the most tremendous sermons you've ever heard in your life. So the question is not, are we trying to make somebody like a historic dispensation? The question is, what is dispensationalism and how far can you change from that, or how far can you change from covenant theology and still say, hey, I, I'm using this word, but really I'm not over there. The real question to me are these. How much of what Schofield said is essential to consistent dispensationalism? 
What were his presuppositions? And were the things that he believed consistent with his presuppositions? And if they weren't consistent with his presuppositions, where was he wrong or where was his presuppositions wrong? And if we say, yes, he was consistent, then how can we differ with some of the things he said? See, I, I don't think we can just take the Schofield Revolution and say, oh, we don't believe that. What are the presuppositions upon which we draw our views of a millennial kingdom? Whether we're all-mill, pre-mill, or post-mill. That's what I'm saying. Now, look at F. And I want you to look at this, and we'll have to go get a cup of coffee. <clears throat> Page 4, Appendix F. And this is a note from Revelation 14.6, under the word gospel. The great theme may be summarized as follows. In itself, the word gospel means good news. Four forms of the gospel are to be distinguished. The gospel of the kingdom... This is the good news that God purposed us to set up on the earth in fulfillment of the Davidic covenant, 2 Samuel 7, 16, a kingdom, political, spiritual, Israelitish, universal, over which God's son, David's heir, shall be king, and which shall be for 1,000 years the manifestation of the righteousness of God in human affairs. Two preachings of this kingdom are mentioned. One passed, beginning with the ministry of John the Baptist, continued by our Lord and his disciples, and ending with the Jewish rejection of the king. The others yet future, and so on. Now, again, I say I'm not trying to tar people with tar, but when I read this in that first paragraph, that God's going to set up a kingdom in fulfillment of the Davidic covenant, and one of the things that older dispensationalism was militant was that the Davidic kingdom was not yet set up. That was essential to historic dispensationalism. My question is, this description of this kingdom, political, spiritual, Israelitish, universal, number one, these words are tied to the Davidic covenant. Are these words descriptive and the clear and consistent statement of a literal interpretation of the Old Testament? Are those descriptive words that would suit and fit anybody who would take that view of the Old Testament scriptures? If all we had was the Old Testament scriptures, would our view of the kingdom, the land of Palestine, and the place of the Jewish nation in the kingdom be basically like that set forth in the Schofield footnote? And I would say yes, without hesitation. Does the New Testament ever offer this kind of a kingdom to the Jews in the future? And thirdly, what is essentially different in Schofield's political, spiritual, Israelitish, universal kingdom from the kingdom the Jews rejected, who rejected Christ, were looking for. And then the thing that we also ask is the present day dispensationalist. Do those words describe his view of this kingdom, that it is spiritual, Israelitish, universal, political, with the Jews at the head of the nation? 
Is that a description of what you would believe if you would differ from me? Time for coffee.